Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo. I'm a policy analyst on Latin America at Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. One of Venezuela's keenest observers once said that Venezuela suffers from two self-reinforcing plights, oil and socialism. That was journalist Carlos Rangel in 1983, 16 years before Hugo Chavez came to power and 22 years before Chavez declared Venezuela the land of 21st century socialism. Rangel was right. Since he became Venezuela's top export in 1925, but increasingly since World War II, oil encouraged military rulers and democratically elected leaders alike to heavily intervene in the economy and create perverse incentives in the political system, the business community, and among ordinary Venezuelans. Raul Gallego's Crude Nation is not a book about how Chavismo ruined Venezuela. In fact, many of the failed economic policies of the late Hugo Chavez and his hapless successor, Nicolás Maduro, such as price and exchange controls, unsustainable subsidies, the vast expansion of government jobs, nationalization of companies, massive indebtedness, and the printing of money to finance public spending were also implemented by democratic governments in the decades before Chavez came to power. Of course, things got much worse with Chavismo. Venezuela's long decline in economic freedom that began in the late 1970s accelerated in the 2000s. Today, according to the Economic Freedom of the World Report published by the Fraser Institute of Canada, Venezuela ranks last among 159 nations. Chavez oil-fueled socialism was quite popular for a while. Margaret Thatcher's dictum that the problem with socialists is that they always run out of other people's money faced a unique challenge in Chavista Venezuela. During the course of a decade and a half, the government received over $1 trillion in oil revenues, the equivalent in today's money of more than seven plant marshals. This was, was enough to mask the effect of hundreds of expropriations stifling economic controls, and otherwise running the private economy into the ground. But Thatcher's axiom did eventually catch up with Venezuelan socialism. And now that country suffers from the worst humanitarian crisis in the Ameri that the Americas have seen in modern times. The question in every reader's mind after finishing Crude Nation is not, Venezuela, is not how Venezuela will overcome this terrible situation, but whether Venezuelans will learn the lesson Oil is a powerful narcotic. Unfortunately, as Gallegos points out, Venezuelans of all political stripes are addicted to it. According to a 2011 survey, approximately 48% of Venezuelans believe that the government can solve all of society's problems. And 81% agree with the idea that the government can solve most of society's problems. No wonder that most Venezuelan politicians, even in the opposition, espouse socialist ideas. Today we'll hear more about Raul Gallego's diagnosis of Venezuela and his troubled relationship with oil. We will also hear from Gustavo Coronel about what structural reform can be implemented to avoid repeating the same mistakes in the future. Finally, let's keep something in mind. Venezuela is not a normal country and it will never be 
as long as it sits on top of one of the world's largest reserves of oil. Any discussion about structural reforms must begin by acknowledging the fact that, as Gallego points out, Venezuela is not Norway and will never become Norway. We need to understand Venezuela's history and culture in order to design effective structural reforms. Let's begin the conversation with the author of the book, Raul Gallegos. He's an associate director for the consulting firm Control Risk in Bogota, Colombia. Prior to Control Risk, he had a long career in journalism and featured columnist for Bloomberg, a financial columnist for Reuters, a reporter for the LA Times, and a Caracas correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He's the author of Crew Nation, a book that won the 2017 Christopher Wells Prize given by Columbia University. He holds a BA in economics from the University of California, Berkeley, and a master's degree from the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, and a master's degree from Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. Please help me welcome Raul Gallegos. Well, first of all, thank you, thank you very much for being here, and uh, thank you very much to the Cato Institute for uh, such gracious invitation. Um, what I'm going to do today is uh, give you a little bit of a sense of what, in my view, are one of the three main dynamics that essentially have led to uh, having Venezuela where it is today. Um, and um, I think to do that, we need to look a little bit at uh, Venezuela's history. So I bring you the three steps to ruin a nation. Um, I think any story, any good story, uh, and the story of Venezuela is certainly uh, an interesting one, begins with a uh, Hungarian mustache, a hipster Hungarian mustache. And uh, this man we have here is uh, Juan Vicente Gomez. He is a dictator that managed to rule Venezuela for 27 years. Now, he was a ruthless man. He uh, gained power by uh, staging a coup when the president, his boss, when he was vice president, went to Paris to seek treatment for syphilis. Um, he uh, uh, was lucky in that he took over power in 1918, four years after Venezuela had first discovered commercial quantities of crude. Um, he was also a corrupt man. Uh, the way he dealt with the business, the oil business, was to give concessions to friends, and friends would later resell those to uh, international companies. And uh, he made a very, very large fortune doing this. Um, and he was also a man who had no patience uh, for dissent. Uh, you know, people who opposed him were jailed and poisoned and killed. And uh, he ran essentially Venezuela like a hacienda. There was no rule of law. There was no government, really. Um, you know, he was, he was God in Venezuela, and Venezuela was his Eden. Uh, and in this form, he managed to rule Venezuela for almost 30 years, uh, you know, in a direct and indirect way. And I think what's important about the story of this man is that, um, in many ways, the political class in Venezuela and society in Venezuela, that at the time had no real strong, really no strong institutions, uh, took his image and his example and understood that that was the way to run a country. Uh, he didn't save any money. He had no sense for um, saving for the future. He just used money to buy the support uh, of those he needed to enrich himself and to stay in power. 
Um, now, the reason why this is important is because one of the lessons that Venezuela, or one of the reasons or, or steps Venezuela used to essentially become what it is today, a ruined nation, is spend, 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 and save absolutely nothing. Um, and after uh, Juan Vicente Gomez left power, when he died peacefully in bed in the 30s, uh, following that, you had uh, you know, a couple of other presidents, uh, a couple of coups, uh, because the, actually the military had learned that uh, they had the guns and therefore with guns they could demand a bigger piece of the oil pie, if you will. Uh, but in this commotion eventually, um, you know, uh, 20 or so years of commotion and uh, a few governments in between, uh, what we had was um, uh, the man who essentially emerged as a strong man was Perez Jimenez, who was featured by time way back in, 19, in the 50s. He came to power in 1952 and was in power uh, for like five years. And uh, what this man did was cement uh, the idea in the mind of Venezuelans that spending in large amounts and being uh, in essentially large, oil largesse was something that they could expect in their lives. Um, he is remembered for his huge infrastructure projects, granted, compared to a number of other um, leaders, he actually did spend on infrastructure. Uh, but it was, also, it was always wasteful. Um, you know, one of the more uh, salient uh, projects was that hotel that sits right behind him in this photo, the Tamanaco Hotel, uh, where just to inaugurate the hotel, they ended up spending a price tag of $75, thousand dollars at the time, which transferred to 2015 dollars, was around, was around $670,000 for, for the party alone, uh, with 2,000 guests, 2,000 guests and around 6,500 pounds of fowl and, uh, and, and beef. Um, another one of the uh, projects he's remembered for is uh, this freeway that connects Caracas to the airport and the coast. Uh, popular mechanics at the time in 1953 deemed it the costliest freeway in the world. Um, it cost 50, uh, in 2015 dollars again, it was a 10.5 mile freeway that cost $53 million per mile to make. Um, after his uh, eventual demise, um, uh, his demise only came when the military actually turned on him. He was a military man himself. Um, he left a, a very clear mark in Venezuelan history. People now expected to live the way that they lived when Perez Jimenez lived. There was quote unquote order, of course. He jailed opponents and forced them to sit in blocks of ice naked in jail for hours on end. That was sort of his signature move. Um, and so, that became, again, sort of like Juan, uh, Juan Vicente Gomez, part of the uh, political imagination of Venezuelans of how a nation should be run. Um, the 70s was an interesting uh, point of uh, wealth and, and largesse as well. As you know, uh, in the 70s, um, you had the um, uh, oil embargo, um, and that essentially pushed up prices to unheard of limits. And uh, this meant that a torrent of uh, petrodollars came into Venezuela, and you could feel that in everyday life. The Concorde jet would fly into Venezuela, um, I, I, I believe, every other day, and then uh, almost fr as frequently as one flight a day. 
Um, and at the time, Venezuela became known as Venezuela, uh, Saudi Venezuelan, because Venezuelans had so much wealth, they would go to Miami and buy two things of everything they liked. You know, the, the, the idea was that if you saw something, they, they said, Tabarato dame dos, which means, oh, that's cheap, give me two of them. Um, at the time, President Carlos Andres Perez came into power, and he vowed to, quote unquote, manage abundance with a mentality of scarcity. He understood that oil wealth mismanaged could lead to very difficult situations. However, his promise was a lie. Um, he spent like a drunken sailor, just like pretty much uh, other uh, previous leaders before him, uh, particularly Perez Jimenez, although as, as uh, you know, some of you might argue that, you know, again, he did uh, create some interesting infra or solid infrastructure. Uh, in this case, there was a lot of waste. Uh, Pere, uh, Carlos Andres Perez, who was known as CAP, hired lift men in every single elevator in government offices and also uh, uh, attendants in every restroom because the idea was we need to employ people. We need to do something with this wealth. We cannot just have it sitting in an, in a, in an account and uh, gaining interest. He did create a fund, the first uh, attempt of a fund to save oil wealth in Venezuela, but it didn't go anywhere. In the end, he ended up going through that money as well. At the time, per capita income in Venezuela was uh, compared to that of West Germany. So this was a time of enormous wealth and, uh, and benefit. Um, so there was no saving whatsoever uh, you know, through the 70s. Um, the second, oh, sorry, what did I do here? Oh, here we go. Okay. The second uh, step that helped ruin the nation was ignoring people who warned that uh, mismanaged wealth would destroy the country. Um, and uh, Juan Pablo Perez Alfonso, who we have pictured here, is a man who uh, founded OPEC and who essentially designed the uh, laws that currently exist as to the relationship between oil producing countries and companies that produce that oil in those, in those countries. In, in the past, the Seven Sisters were essentially the companies that decided the price at which oil was sold, how much, at what markets, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Perez Alfonso was the one that uh, was savvy enough to understand after studying here for many years here in DC and living in DC, he loved DC by the way, um, he understood that that had to be inverted, that every country had to have control over its resources. Well, this smart man that essentially shaped the nature of the oil business as we know it today uh, had the temerity to tell Venezuelans that when oil prices rose to unheard of levels in the 70s, he said, that amount of money will crush us. We don't know how to manage that money. We have to be very careful with that. They immediately dismissed him as a crank. He was a crazy person that had to be ignored from that point on. And eventually he left uh, Venezuela and he died here in, in DC. Um, you know, as someone who was once a genius, but was essentially disowned by his own people. Um, what, what happened uh, when this supposed killjoy was ignored? Well, let's see. Uh, Mr. President Campins fe featured here uh, in the 80s. What happened in the 80s after almost a decade of uh, uh, 
essentially a national party of spending and, and uh, excess. Uh, this president was forced to devalue the currency. Uh, it was the biggest devaluation the country had ever seen in February 18, 1983. And he imposed capital and price controls, of course. And that was not the first time that had happened. It had happened uh, way before Perez Jimenez, in, in, in fact. Uh, presidents had become accustomed to trying to use price and capital controls to essentially uh, use them as patchwork um, to address the, the folly of their own policies. Um, shortly after this happened, um, the hangover of that excess uh, led to uh, President uh, Carlos Andres Perez coming in and having to essentially raise, uh, get rid of uh, capital and price controls. And that led to a massive, massive riding known as El Caracaso. And uh, El Caracaso is remembered because people went out into the streets to protest, riot, and loot. And uh, official estimates say that around 300 people died in a course of a couple of weeks or a few weeks. Um, uh, others say it was far higher. Um, but this was essentially the, the hangover of the huge party that Venezuelans had enjoyed in the 70s. In the 90s, uh, then uh, Venezuela suffered a banking crisis as well. Um, and uh, one of the features of that banking crisis was that um, pretty much most, uh, most of the uh, savers were made whole by the government. Uh, a few lost some money, especially you know, companies and some of the very well off, but the vast majority of, uh, of people were able to get their deposits back. Uh, that was obviously another form of spending. Um, and then the third uh, way that the government has uh, managed to, uh, Venezuela has managed to destroy itself is ignoring the past. Um, again, when Chavez came to power, obviously there was a, um, an issue of, uh, of a large majority of Venezuelans living in poverty. That's undeniable. Uh, there was an issue of exclusion that a lot of people felt excluded by the previous political elite. Um, he came, but he came to power in uh, the way that many other politicians in the past had come to power, offering generosity. And he was very generous. He created uh, scores of you know, hundreds of thousands of homes, which essentially he gave to Venezuelans essentially for free, considering the conditions that, uh, under which those homes were given. Um, massive spending uh, was sort of the norm of the day. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, I think from 1999 through 2014, Venezuela was able to receive around 1.4, 1.38 trillion dollars in oil revenue. And, uh, you know, this was largely spirited away through corruption and waste, as well as obviously social spending. Uh, now, what was the hangover there? Well, uh, first off, you saw a crippled, uh, well, not first off, but one of, the, one of the things that happened was you saw a crippled car manufacturing uh, industry. Uh, you can't find a car if your life depends on it because simply there are no dollars and there's no foreign currency for these companies to import the kits to put those cars together. So, you know, you often run into, um, you know, car dealerships like this that have absolutely no cars. And to get a car, when they do get one, uh, you have to pay under the table to actually buy the car to some of the salesmen that, are, that, that work there. 
of course, you've also had massive shortages of food. And uh, that continues to be the case as well, particularly because what does get produced over there now has to be sold at a loss in many cases because of price controls. And uh, there is no foreign currency to import products that are imported from, abro from abroad. And just to give you a sense, around seven to eight products uh, of every 10 products on the shelves comes from overseas in Venezuela. So it's an import-dependent nation. And then, of course, there's a shortage in democracy. And that is the, the most dire shortage of all uh, at this point in time. I mean, we are now in a situation where, in order to continue to be in power, the Chavista regime is cracking down as hard as it can. And you know, that is something that certainly we have seen over the last couple of years. Um, so just to give you a sense, um, this is what the perception was earlier this year that was going to happen in Venezuela. You know, the idea that somehow pure frustration and fury over what had happened, uh, a lot of people still blame Chavismo for, what, for, for the situation Venezuela finds itself in, and fair enough. Yes, Chavismo is largely responsible for the latest iteration of the mess we're seeing. Um, but the issue is far uh, more structural. Uh, we are seeing a, a country that has refused to accept that it has an addiction to crude and to mismanaged oil wealth. Not crude. Crude is not a bad, is not a bad thing. Crude is a resource. Uh, but they are used to mismanaged oil wealth. And they, seek, they refuse to seek treatment. And just like any addict, uh, as a human being, if you're addicted to any sort of substance, you know, the, th the thing to do is seek help, go to meetings, um, you know, avoid the fridge if you, are due to, if, you're, if you happen to be into overeating. Um, unfortunately, Venezuela has not taken the steps to create a, a solid legal framework that will tie the hands of politicians and make it you know, very difficult to go on a spending spree. And there is absolutely no saving a la Alaska or you know, Norway or even some countries in the Middle East that have been very effective at this. Um, so at this point, uh, this regime is very much entrenched with the help of the military. So the idea that those people pushing the statue are actually going to be able to crush Maduro is, is very much wishful thinking at this point in time. Uh, I think this is a most likely outcome. Um, Maduro will continue to drive that bus off the cliff. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid that we are uh, due for some more pain uh, before uh, the situation uh, improves anytime soon. Thank you so much for, uh, for your time. And uh, Thank you, Raul. We're going to hear next from uh, Gustavo Coronel. He's a founding member of the Board of Directors of Petróleo de Venezuela, PDVSA, Venezuela's state-owned company, between 1976 and 1979. For over three decades, he also worked as an international consultant in the oil industry. Uh, Coronel was the Venezuelan representative of Transparency International in, between 1995 and 2000. He's the author of numerous articles and publications on corruption, economic development, and the oil industry in Venezuela. He holds degrees in geology from the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma and from the Central University of Caracas. He also holds a master's degree in international public policy from John Hopkins University. Please help me welcome Gustavo Coronel. Thank you. Thank you, Juan Carlos. Uh, I have been away from Venezuela for the last uh, 15 years. 
and I cannot go back. Uh, I could go in, but I doubt I could get out. But uh, that's not the main reason, actually. The, the main reason why I can never go back uh, to Venezuela is uh, because Venezuela, the Venezuela that I knew, that I grew in and was very happy in, does not exist any longer. Uh, during the last uh, 15 years, the country has undergone a, a disaster of great magnitude. In fact, uh, I have been able to, to get a lot of information that I didn't uh, have from this uh, excellent book by Raul Gallegos. Uh, I, I consider this a superb uh, work of journalism, uh, loaded with uh, good information and uh, fascinating in so many ways. Uh, uh, I can only give you a few examples of my reaction to the book because I, we don't have enough time. Uh, first of all, I would disagree with Raul that uh, oil riches ruined Venezuela. Uh, I would rather say that Venezuelans ruined Venezuela. You, you don't say uh, the, the machete killed the old man. You said somebody with a machete killed the old man. Uh, a bit misleading uh, because you also have uh, other countries like uh, Holland uh, and Norway, uh, even the United Arab Emirates, uh, even Ecuador that have survived uh, being petrostates. But in our case, it has been a total, a total disaster. Uh, I would say rather that uh, Venezuelan ruin is a uh, arithmetical formula uh, made up of I plus M plus C, where I is ignorance, M is uh, mismanagement, and C is corruption. I believe these three factors uh, explain a lot of the Venezuelan tragedy. Chapter three, in special, was very uh, uh, important to me because it's a chapter that deals with the oil uh, industry in Venezuela, with the decline of the oil industry in Venezuela. In my, in, in my opinion, uh, Hugo Chavez in this chapter gets a little too much credit. Uh, you know, Chavez uh, has had a wonderful publicity all over the world. Even today in Europe, uh, Chavez is painted as a big defender of the poor uh, all over the world. And, and in fact, uh, it, you, you have to think about this uh, drama in Venezuela. Chavez had $1.3 trillion to work with, and uh, instead of going into a massive program of structural uh, solutions to poverty, he decided instead in uh, going into, into a massive program of handouts. Chavez gave away billions of dollars, uh, like uh, in the old Chinese proverb of uh, a, a fish a day, but never teaching anyone how to fish. So at the very end of the day today, you have more poverty in Venezuela than when Chavez arrived in power. And we are out of the $1.3 trillion. Uh, chapter four, uh, which I recommend, 
deals with the frivolity or frivolity of Venezuelans, uh, the fatalistic attitude of Venezuelans. But in Venezuela, uh, even the teenagers, uh, the girls uh, coming in of age, 15, what they ask uh, their parents is money to undergo plastic surgery. And uh, that's why in Venezuela you have a lot of uh, beauty queens, uh, because the beauty queens are the result of uh, superb plastic surgery. The chapter six and uh, chapter six deals with the oil industry operations, and I believe that uh, I am going to concentrate uh, then on the uh, on the oil industry situation in in Venezuela, the past and the po the potential outlook of, of the of the oil industry. Yes, in in Venezuela, uh, oil was nationalized in 1976. And I can tell you it was the wrong decision to make. Uh, it was a wrong decision, but it had to be taken because in Venezuela, well, maybe here as well, uh, when children become of age, when they become 14 uh, or so, they are given a pair of long trousers. Uh, we say in Venezuela, se puso los pantalones largos. He is now wearing long trousers. And uh, nationalizing the oil industry in Venezuela was the equivalent uh, of a teenager becoming an adult. Uh, the pol political leaders in Venezuela felt that they had to nationalize the oil industry in order for the country to become really sovereign. That was their main reason to do that. But in fact, uh, economically, it was a very bad uh, decision. In, in the 1970s, Venezuela had almost 85% of the gross income from the oil industry, and uh, they didn't have to put the money to invest, to make new investments. All the new investments were done by the concessionaires. So what, uh, what Venezuela nationalized in, in the 1970s was the risk uh, of uh, becoming uh, nationalized but not the benefits. The benefits, they were already in the possession of the Venezuelan government. However, unfortunately, uh, the uh, management of the oil industry stayed in the hands of the professional managers, of the technocrats. There was a big debate a big fight between the technocrats and the politicians in the 1970s, and the, the technocrats won that round and, and preserved the control of the management of the oil industry in Venezuela. And uh, for, for about uh, 10 years, for about 10 years, uh, this management did uh, very well. And Petróleos de Venezuela, the nationalized oil company, was among the three or four best uh, uh, managed companies in, in the world. Uh, but the, every new government that arrived in, in Venezuela intervened more and more in, in, the, in the workings of the, of the oil industry. They lost uh, their, uh, their fear. At first, they didn't know uh, for them the oil industry was a black box. 
But as time went by, they became more and more familiar, and they, they said, maybe we can do this, we can handle the oil industry directly. And the, the, the oil company became victim of a progressive uh, politicization. And uh, by 1998 uh, or uh, 1999, Venezuela, uh, PDVSA had lost uh, a tremendous amount of efficiency. And then, of course, in 1999, Chavez arrived. Now, if you want to know in, in very simple terms what happened during all these years that uh, Chavez and the Chavistas have been in power in, in Venezuela, just look at this, this uh, slide. Uh, from 1998, when Chavez arrived, to 2017, the production in, in Venezuela has decreased from uh, two, uh, from 3.2 million barrels per day to less than 2 million barrels per day. And uh, this decline in production has been combined with an increase in the amount of employees. Uh, we had uh, 35,000 employees in 1999, and uh, today uh, PDVSA has about 160,000 employees. Uh, so there is a lot more quantity, and there is also a lot, a, a lot less uh, quality. Uh, the company debt that in 1998 was only, say, $4 or $5 dollars is now of the order of $90 billion. But uh, this is after the enormous income of the last uh, 18 years. And the exports, uh, in general, the exports have decreased uh, significantly, but uh, to the United States, that was the best client of Venezuela for, for many, many years. Uh, and uh, Venezuela used to export uh, maybe 1.5 million barrels per day to the United States in the 1990s. Today, it's down to 0.6 million barrels per day is uh, uh, less than half of what we used to export to the U.S. Of course, uh, it's not a matter of, uh, of the U.S. requiring the Venezuelan oil any longer, because right now the United States in the, is in the position to export oil to the United States. And uh, although this sounds incredible, that's exactly what is going on. Uh, the United States today exports about uh, 60 to 70,000 barrels of gasoline to Venezuela every day. Uh, and uh, if tomorrow President Trump uh, decided to cut all Venezuelan imports into the U.S., uh, they wouldn't make any impact or any significant impact in the, in the U.S. Uh, economy. Now, why this, this happened? Why did Petróleos de Venezuela collapse in, uh, during these last 18 years? Well, to begin with, uh, the mission of the company was changed from being an oil company designed to produce oil and export oil and, and get the income from, from this activity uh, to becoming a social company meaning that the uh, company started 
importing uh, chickens, uh, food, distributing food in Venezuela, subsidized food, and uh, uh, building houses, doing many things that have no place in the normal activities of an oil company. Uh, it's like if British Petroleum uh, started uh, to go into the hotel industry, for example. And when oil companies start to do that, that's the beginning of, uh, the, beginning of the end uh, for, for the oil companies. Now, the oil then was also used as a political tool by, by Chavez. Uh, Chavez uh, has given Cuba, or gave Cuba, about uh, $50 billion in subsidized oil. And even today, they, uh, Cuba gets uh, close to 90,000 barrels of oil per day from, from Venezuela. Now, the amount of subsidy, uh, the transference of money from Venezuela to Cuba during the Chavez uh, era has been enormous. Uh, and that, have been, that has been at, at the expense of, of the Venezuelan people. Uh, these 50 or $60 billion that went to Cuba were taken away from the Venezuelan people. But uh, not only Cuba, you have Petrocaribe, which is a collection of small uh, countries in the Caribbean, and they get about uh, 200,000 barrels a day <coughs> from Venezuela. Now a little less, because Venezuela is producing less, but uh, at a point in time, these countries owe Venezuela $22 billion. And uh, a, it was a debt uh, they could never repay. Right now, for example, Dominican Republic uh, paid uh, Venezuela the debt. Uh, it paid only 40% of the total debt. And Jamaica paid only 40% of the total debt. So Venezuela has given an enormous amount of money to these countries only to get back their political loyalty. If you go into the OAS today, you cannot do anything against Venezuela because the Caribbean countries, uh, members of Petrocaribe, will vote in bloc uh, against the, any sanctions for, uh, to Venezuela. So that's why the OAS is totally paralyzed by this collection of 15 small Caribbean countries, members of Petrocaribe. Uh, there were domestic su subsidies. Right now in Venezuela, gasoline is f actually free. I mean, they don't even bother to pay for the gasoline in the gasoline stations because the paperwork involved in billing would be more expensive than the gasoline itself. But uh, on top of all of this, the real reason why Petróleos de Venezuela has collapsed has been corruption. I mean, corruption in Petróleos de Venezuela uh, is today the dominant characteristic of the oil company. About $300 billion from uh, Petróleos de Venezuela has gone into uh, banks in Andorra, in Spain, in Panama, in the financial sanctuaries of the world. And uh, a lot of this uh, knowledge is in the hands of the U.S. government. And in fact, the, the U.S. government is probably the only government uh, right now doing something about it. There are people being sent to prison. 
there are a long there is a long list of uh, Venezuelan top officers who are being sanctioned by the US government. But basically, Petróleos de Venezuela is a big money launderer today, an international money launderer. The armed forces, the armed forces, uh, uh, are involved in drug trafficking. Uh, some of, uh, at least half a dozen of the top generals in the Venezuelan army are listed uh, by, the, uh, by the Department of Treasury as cooperating co 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 with, uh, with the drug trafficking in, in Latin America in general. They also uh, involve in contraband uh, they have the monopoly of food distribution in Venezuela. So the armed forces today are really uh, the real uh, government in Venezuela, even more so than, than Hugo, uh, than uh, Ma Ma Maduro. Uh, in, in the finance area, uh, there, there are a group of friendly bankers. Many of them are living in, in Florida and others in the Dominican Republic and they have made billions out of their affiliation with the government. So in fact, uh, what we have today in, in Venezuela is, is something like Humpty Dumpty, but Humpty Dumpty after his fall. Uh, Humpty Dumpty broke into so many pieces that uh, he couldn't be put back together. And, and I am afraid that this is the case with Petróleos de Venezuela. Petróleos de Venezuela is totally uh, unrecoverable. You cannot put Petróleos de Venezuela back together. So the future of the oil industry in Venezuela under a democratic government will have to be a completely new model of uh, management. It, it will involve, it should involve a, a total participation of the outside companies, of the foreign companies, into Venezuela, and uh, no state oil company. We don't need a state oil company in Venezuela. We know that if we had one, it would become the same as Petróleos de Venezuela. Uh, so uh, what we would need is a regulating agency to, uh, in, in, so that uh, the, the, uh, the foreign oil companies are supervised by this regulating uh, agency. But on top of all this, the window of opportunity for the oil industry in Venezuela is uh, no, probably no more than 40 more years. Uh, as you know, the Venezuelan oil, although they have immense uh, reserves, is very heavy, uh, very sour, uh, very low quality. You need a lot of money to refine and upgrade this oil. And we are in a transition globally from fossil fuels into renewable sources of energy. And in spite of the US coming out of the Paris Agreement, in spite of all the efforts by the oil companies, this is a trend which is, also, is now irreversible. In 40 more years, you will see oil decreasing more and more in importance as solar and wind and other sources of energy become more and more important. So I believe that the, the days of Venezuela as an oil country are counted. 
uh, probably no more than 40 years. And in, tho in those years, Venezuela will only be a modest producer and exporter. So Venezuela is a major uh, power in, 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 geo in the geopolitics of oil. Uh, I think uh, he, the, these days are ended for, for Venezuela. Thank you. Thank you, Gustavo. I don't know, uh, Raul, if you want to add something, say something about what uh, Gustavo mentioned. Um, no, I, 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 I would jump in and say that uh, yeah, certainly Gustavo's right. I think um, uh, Venezuela will likely never be the same it was in the past uh, following Chavismo, uh, whenever that actually occurs. Um, and, and I think... I mean, I, again, I insist, I think, uh, and, and that's one of the, the points I, I want to bring out in the book, and, and that is that every other country that produces natural, you know, has natural resource wealth in the world, I mean, in Norway, for instance, and, and certainly uh, the state of Alaska as well, they uh, decided to take steps to properly manage their resources after seeing what happened with Venezuela. Uh, when the Norwegians were thinking about creating their oil wealth fund, now the largest in the world, they thought about Venezuela. And, uh, and I think, you know, Venezuela has been a, a negative example for the world for too long uh, of what not to do with oil resources. Um, and I think, you know, um, hopefully in the future Venezuelans will come to that realization and they will have the power to do something about it. But uh, until then, I'm afraid that it doesn't matter whether it's Chavismo or any other government, the tendency is too strong to mismanage that wealth. Yeah, one of the, the pressing notes of your book is precisely how you highlight the way that oil has distorted the, the mindset of Venezuelans regarding their views towards government their abuse towards business, their abuse towards effort in life. And, and that's one of the uh, most depressing aspects of, of this read, that you come out with the realization that this is not going to be over when Maduro is gone and when the Chavismo is gone. And if you go to Venezuela and you talk to people in the opposition, you will realize that they think the same as many Chavistas. They regard uh, government as a big uh, way to give handouts and, um, and gain power uh, by, by just giving away money and, and, and jobs and, and subsidies and, and so on. So I, I, I highly recommend uh, Raul's book on that regard because uh, it, it, it teaches you a lot about uh, where Venezuela is right now, uh, not regarding politics, not regarding the crisis the, the, that, that is, is going in the, in the streets or even the humanitarian crisis that is taking place there, but in the mindset of Venezuelans that, that is, I think is more important. We're going to open the floor for questions. Uh, we have two mics around. Uh, I'm just going to ask you to please, please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone and uh, announce your name and affiliation. Stand up when, when you're going to, when I call you on. We're going to start over there with the gentleman, yeah. Uh, oh, hi, uh, Pat Span, just myself. Um, I was wondering if, if, the, um, if you guys would have an estimate on when 
the, the uh, current regime is going to be stopped being able to provide for the uh, military, their family, and the internal services. I, that I keep thinking that um, the way things are going, that even though there may be, they may be into drugs and whatever, they're eventually, you know, once, once the military and their families aren't taken care of, it's time for regime change. And I wonder if you have, I mean, is this months, years? I mean, it seems to me they should be coming rather quickly. I wonder if you could comment on that. Can I take that? Okay. Um, well, thank you for the question. Um, that's a that's a that's a it's a good question and something that's in the minds of a lot of people these days. Um, I would, however, um, ask you to uh, think about how the Venezuelan population has become accustomed through decades to receiving things from the government. Um, and uh, through this whole 100 years of oil history, uh, we've seen also that obviously oil prices go up, oil, oil prices go down. So these expectations are also very elastic. Um, you know, at the early uh, part of uh, the Chavista regime, people were getting homes. People were getting free cars. People were getting refrigerators and uh, fully equipped, uh, you know, just furniture and equipment for the house. Um, and now these people are satisfied if you give them a bag of food. Uh, not satisfied, but certainly, you know, it helps to, um, you know, make it, um, to, to make sure the government isn't as unpopular as it otherwise would be, if you will. No one is actually singing uh, out of their, singing from their roofs just because they're getting a bag of food, but uh, at a time when there is deep scarcity and serious scarcity of food and, and other basics, um, you know, the government has been very effective in manipulating the hope that people have by giving them these, these, home, these, uh, these bags of food. In the case of the military and in the case of corruption itself, that elasticity of expectations also applies. Um, you know, you might be able in the past to have, you know, been able to get away with taking, I don't know, $10 million to an account somewhere in Switzerland. And now these same people um, are happy to be in a position of power um, and to have access to power and have the ability to trade dollars in the black market or trade with food in the black market or engage in other illicit activity, and the government allows that in order to continue to have their support. So I think this is a government that has learned that in Venezuela, you rule through spoils. And, uh, and the most recent example is the government created the Constitutional Assembly and stuffed it with 545 people. You can tell me how effective 545 people can be in creating a new constitution. Uh, however, what that does is it gives the government seats that it can give away to people to maintain their support, to make them feel important, to make them feel included, and to give them some sort of benefit that otherwise they would not have. Um, and I think that is the same reason why, even though this government has now essentially uh, rule, violated every electoral rule in the book, it still did not allow the, the, the opposition to win more seats, more gubernatorial seats, oh, I'm sorry, more, more regional governments than it would have won um, in the last election because the government uses those governorships to rule through spoils. You put people in positions of power to keep people happy, to have them rely entirely on you 
when you don't have money, you give them a seat in a made-up Congress. That's essentially how they were. So my, view, my answer to your question is, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, to be quite frank. Um, and it's because they use a carrot and a stick. The carrot is the spoils, and the stick is essentially a very active um, uh, and very efficient uh, intelligence apparatus that essentially uh, you know, throws people in jail when they don't agree with the government. We have to keep in mind that the alternative for many people in the military, the alternative to being in power with Maduro is not retiring in a farm with a government pension. Right. Uh, if the government falls, they're probably facing jail. That's the other thing. Yeah. Or being extradited to the United States on their exactly. drug trafficking charges or having to move to Cuba. So, I mean, the price of leaving power for them is enormous. Can I, yeah. I'm sorry, I just want to add one last point. And one example is that every time the US imposes sanctions on a particular individual, that individual all of a sudden gets more power. He's promoted. Uh, he's, he's promoted. promoted. He becomes the internal, internal minister or something like that because that person outside of Venezuela would be no one and would be probably in jail. But if I give that person power, I control that person. I can tell that person to not breathe if I want to. And they will do it. Here, gentlemen over here. We're gonna. Imper. Yes, I'm Imper Kurovsky. Uh, I come from an NGO called Petropolitan in Venezuela. And I was a diversification manager, 1974-76, in the first Venezuelan investment fund. I lasted two weeks there because the pressures from the presidency was just Mind-boggling, I said, this will fail. But I want to raise just two type of things. When we refer to the handouts, the 40% most poor in Venezuela got less than 15% of what they would have received had the oil revenues just been shared out. Less than 15%. So this handout was it has nothing to do with, with uh, uh, fighting poverty, but political power. The hand was, was never in cash. The hand was always in things that they earn profits on. But I would also like to make a point here on the differences in mentality. In Venezuela right now, people are dying on the street, lack of food, lack of medicine, and gas sold less than one cent per gallon. Norway, that's the lowest price by far. Saudi Arabia is 25 cents per gallon. Venezuela, one cent. Norway, the most expensive country by far, $2.70 per liter, over $8.50 per gallon. Those are the big differences that really show that what is happening in Venezuela is a type of crime, economic crime against humanity that's really not being denounced. And in so many places, we need that type of, of, of identification of what constitutes economic crime against humanity. Look at Norway. They have right now $200,000 per each Norwegian in their account. In their, uh, but, but what Norwegians have paid their governments through gasoline taxes is more than what Norway has put in that fund. So one has to really take the perspectives and look at uh, uh, on different issues are very complicated. No country, no country whatsoever can function in a sustainable way if a government receives 97% of all export revenues. Just try to imagine your presidents here, try 
managing this country if he was receiving 97% of all the exports revenues of the US. It's an impossible situation. Unless some type of oil revenue sharing comes to place, there is nothing whatsoever to do. Thank you. That's a good point, and that leads us to the discussion of what structural reforms, if any, we can come up with uh, to, in order to, to try to control this beast yeah. Uh, that is oil in Venezuela. No, I, I think that's a, that's a very solid comment. Thank you for that. Um, and, and one of the things that I, I do in the last chapter of the book is essentially look at what is the experience of other countries, where Venezuela went wrong. And, and one of the things that uh, just, just a, very, a very good economist, a petroleum economist, um, Francisco Monaldi, uh, Venezuelan, uh, he did a study on um, the like with, with a number of other colleagues of what was the uh, whether it would work to have a, a system similar to that of Alaska's where you save money and then you give a dividend to, to people. Um, and, and sure enough, I mean, some of the studies that uh, the investigation he did showed that, um, you know, if, um, if the government had saved that wealth that uh, Chavismo enjoyed early on, you know, uh, people would have been able to get a very, uh, you know, substantive uh, dividend every year. Um, and th they would have been able to also, if, if they had done, if they had increased the, the price of gasoline, as you point out, that also would have created massive savings. And, uh, you know, if that money had been properly invested over time, now Venezuela would have a very sizable uh, fund to, to deal with a number of problems. I think definitely one of the issues that needs to, needs, I mean, one of the things that needs to be done is, is, is to save the wealth and to reinvest it properly and, and, and responsibly. And unfortunately, so far, Venezuelans don't buy into it. When you talk to most Venezuelans in, uh, ab about this sort of proposal, they roll their eyes and they say, oh, that's impossible, we're corrupt. You know, that's the answer, we're just corrupt. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's, that's not an answer. I mean, uh, it, it's all about incentives, really. And if you create an incentive for corruption, of course, you're, you're going to be corrupt. Um, but, you know, uh, obviously, other, other countries have, have learned their lessons. And, you know, Qatar was a poor pearl fishing nation before they discovered crude, and, and they've done wonders with, uh, with the wealth they derived from crude. Um, I think the other thing that needs to be thought about quite seriously, is what to do about the currency. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm a Salvadoran, and I, you know, I, 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 in my country, they dollarize. So I'm partial in that sense to uh, doing something about preventing runaway cash printing, because it's, it's a serious problem. Uh, true, uh, that limits the uh, policy tools of a government. Uh, but it also, in the case where you have a government that is addicted to misspending and mismanagement, it prevents or it, it, it's, uh, it, it creates, uh, an, you know, a, if you will, it, it ties your hands to uh, stop you from yourself. And, uh, and I think Ecuador is, is an example. Certainly, Ecuador has a lot of debt with the Chinese. It's, uh, that's undeniable. And, uh, uh, you know, the, their finances and their economy could have been uh, run uh, far better. Uh, and I think the president right now has been very open about that. Um, but you go to Ecuador and you walk around and you see the economic activity. You see how things are going. And I can tell you they are far better off than Venezuela. 
poverty was uh, was addressed. I mean, poverty hasn't been completely eliminated, of course. Poverty is still there. Um, but I would venture to say that uh, most uh, Ecuadorians would say that they're much better off than they were before that. And if you and if you poll Ecuadorians, they there is no way uh, anyone will be happy with the idea of getting rid of dollarization. Uh, so I think those two elements. Yeah. Would, uh, would help save Venezuela from its worst self in the future. Yeah. For the audience, it's important to know that Ecuador had a populist president, a left-wing populist president for over a decade, who also spent a lot of money, but he couldn't print money. Correct. And, and whereas Venezuela now has a 3,000% uh, uh, inflation rate, Ecuador's inflation rate never surpassed 2%, while this uh, populist government. Uh, the country. I, th I think to, to your point, I think it's important to understand that addressing poverty and moving forward in a society is not easy. There are no shortcuts. That's a lie. The idea that you can all of a sudden transform an economy uh, into a modern nation like Perez Jimenez tried by creating all these different buildings and uh, you know, or, or, or how Carlos Andes Perez wanted to create La Gran Venezuela. It's, it, it's, it's a dream to think that just because you have an, an enormous amount of money, you are going to transform a nation in a year or two. That's just not realistic. <coughs> uh, and unfortunately, that's very hard to say, okay, obviously, to a lot of people who have endured scarcity and discrimination. And, uh, you know, that's difficult to say. But the truth is, change goes slowly. That's, that's a reality. Yeah. We have one question over here. Hi, Jonathan Chamish, Securing America's Future Energy. Um, PETAVASA is obviously at the heart of the system, and I'd be curious if you can share your views about its near-term future. Is this a linear progression where production just drops 50,000, 60,000 barrels a month, or is it more a step function where you see precipitous drops over the near term? Well, actually, the uh, decline in the production is, is very, is very dramatic. I mean, it's very rapid nowadays, uh, simply because uh, the organization of petroleum of Venezuela is crumbling down. Uh, you might know that uh, they, they are on, on the border or on the verge of default. Uh, Venezuela now has uh, a significant delay in paying debt and, uh, and they, they are very close to, to really coming into default. And Petróleos de Venezuela has no means of expanding production, and they have no takers as far as new investments are concerned. So I would say the production uh, is more a matter of very abrupt fall than a, a, a smooth decline. Um, you know, um, certainly uh, as, you know, as a consultant, we've been keeping a very close eye on what's going on with production and our sister company, Oxford Economics, does some, uh, some of the number crunching as far as what we can expect by the end of the year. Um, our assessment is that by the end of the year, we should see around 1.9 to 2 million barrels of production a day on average. Um, certainly the decline has been, has been um, you know, considerable. And uh, the lar a large part of that is because uh, PDVSA hasn't had the, the money to pay uh, oil services companies for their services. 
um, you know, those who import diluents and, uh, um, you know, light crude to blend with heavy crude, uh, you know, that, that has also been a problem. Um, not to mention uh, the issue that, well, in the case of Schlumberger, for example, they were not being paid and they decided to uh, stop uh, working with the government in certain projects. Um, just so you know, I don't see any of the oil services companies, the large ones, or uh, the oil operators, you know, Chevrons of the world and Statoils and whatnot, leaving Venezuela anytime soon. This is the largest, um, you know, oil patch in the planet. Um, they have to have a foot in there. And this is a long-term business of 20, 30 years down the line. Um, but that is essentially the reason why we have continued to see a decline. That said, the government is desperate to make sure that they stop that uh, decline. And they're becoming much more flexible in their terms with, uh, with partners. So, uh, you know, that might help somewhat. Um, but the other factor to take into account is the issue of security. Now you have armed groups stealing parts and equipment from oil projects, holding people up in oil projects to steal their valuables. Um, one of the things that are now that's now in the minds of a, a number of oil companies and oil services companies operating in Venezuela is looting. Uh, as you know, in, with a scarcity of products, of food and basic medicine, uh, we've had instances, recurring instances, and, and increasing instances of uh, people looting stores and uh, you know um, commercial establishments. Uh, it's only a matter of time before the uh, you know small communities that don't have water and other basic necessities figure out that you know that project out there in the middle of nowhere they might have water and food and other and, and other goods. So you know these are very uh, the, the the situation of security is a very real situation. That said, this is not Iraq. This is not uh, you know a, a war zone. Um, so companies that are in that business are used to far worse. Uh, but it still impacts production. And, uh, and in our view, that's going to continue to be a weak spot for, for this regime. Hi, my name is Diana Molino, Regional Media Services. Uh, I haven't heard anything about Cuba. I understand that the Cubans still have a very big presence in Venezuela. And I wanted to ask, on one hand, about the oil supplies to Cuba, whether they are going to be able to continue offering so much oil to them. And uh, what is the population reaction to having all those Cubans around for so long time? <laughs> well, first of all, <coughs> the Venezuelan oil still goes to Cuba, but now less than before. Uh, they used to send uh, 100,000 barrels a day now they probably are in, in the range of uh, 60,000 barrels a day. And the rest of the oil is coming to Cuba from Russia now. Russia has, uh, as you know, an enormous production. Uh, and how do Venezuelans see this situation? Well, I mean, Venezuelans have come to hate uh, the Cuban uh, regime. Uh, the, if, the, if there is any classic situation of a country that has been invaded by another country, which is smaller, which is uh, poorer, is the invasion of Cuba into Venezuela. Venezuela uh, Cuba has maybe uh, 50,000 Cuban advisors and military personnel in Venezuela. And they control uh, a lot of the identification services. 
so they know more about Venezuelans and the Venezuelans themselves. And, uh, and in fact, uh, whenever Maduro has to take a decision, an important decision, he goes to Cuba. He goes to Havana and he meets with uh, Raul Castro and Raul Castro tells him what to do. Uh, that's one of the big tragedies of Venezuela. It's not so much the economic collapse as it is the, the, the loss of dignity among uh, the population. I mean, we, we don't like it. We Venezuelans don't like it, but there has been no, no real reaction against uh, Cuba. Uh, in Venezuela, you hear a lot about uh, inter intervention of the United States into Venezuela uh, or, or intervention of, of the Latin American countries into Venezuela, but nothing about the intervention of Cuba in, in Venezuela, and that has been going on from the very beginning that Hugo Chavez went to Havana and he was uh, seduced, politically seduced uh, by Fidel Castro, and he became a, a, a pupil of Fidel. And uh, Maduro has been trained in Cuba, so they, they are totally uh, loyal to, to the Cuban regime. And, uh, the problem, uh, the, the political triangle of the U.S., Cuba, and Venezuela, you know, is a very difficult one because President Obama didn't want to touch it. Uh, he felt that Cuba was too important to, uh, uh, to, to, to break uh, this uh, situation with Venezuela. Uh, but uh, you, you will never have a, Venezuela, a change in Venezuelan political regime unless you uh, break uh, the Cuban-Venezuelan link. Yeah, I, I would add to that that, uh, you know, when I was in Venezuela in, uh, from 04 through 09, I, I used to hear the idea that, you know, uh, the Cubans had undue influence over the government and they're everywhere and, and uh, you know, they control the intelligence apparatus, et cetera, et cetera. At first, I was very skeptical about that. Um, and, uh, but you know, over the years I've come to understand what really that relationship has been between Chavismo and, and the Cuban regime. It's, a, it's an advisory uh, type of relationship. Uh, what really happened, uh, to put it in, in sort of layman's terms, is that uh, Cuba essentially uh, sold Venezuela a franchise, uh, or the, the Chavista regime, if you will, like a McDonald's, you know. I will uh, show you how to stay in power as long as you want, because I know how to do that. And in exchange, you give me oil, and you hire my doctors, and you give me foreign currency, which I need to survive. And that transaction has been very effective, uh, particularly because Maduro is a very apt pupil. A lot of people like to discount Maduro as sort of a, a, an, an ignorant person, someone who's not very savvy or intelligent. I would disagree. I think this man has been uh, very underestimated. Uh, I think he has been very effective at keep, uh, keeping, uh, playing with people's hopes, um, uh, taking the steps needed to fracture the divided opposition even more. And, uh, and, and, I, and I agree with Gustavo. I mean, uh, there's a direct line with Havana. And Havana, uh, you know, th th that is a regime that has been in power for decades. They know exactly how to manipulate the population, 
um, and and essentially cling on for dear life. And and sadly, we're gonna we're, we will likely continue to see that uh, relationship flourish over time. Um, I'm Todd Anderson here on my own behalf. Um, Gustavo Cornell mentioned default. There's a payment due, I think, later this week. The markets are trying to price in the possibility of when, if and when Venezuela will default. What happens once Venezuela defaults? Is Citgo seized or ships taken or what? And what does that trigger? Um, uh, that's certainly some, something everyone's paying attention to, as you can imagine. Um, I think that what we are going to see this year is uh, Venezuela that will be able to pay what it has to pay this year. 2018 is trickier. Um, however, uh, based on some of the numbers that we've done uh, together with Oxford Economics, it looks as though the government hasn't been burning off as many uh, assets as one would have expected, simply because uh, the way they, they manage to continue to keep a certain amount of money to pay debt is to restrict imports. So, you know, people are going hungry, you don't have consumer products, you don't have food and, you know, medicine, et cetera. Um, and that has allowed them leeway. And of course, there's a relationship with the Chinese and the Russians, and it is in the interest of the Chinese and the Russians to keep Venezuela on life support uh, because they can get a bigger presence in the oil, in the largest oil patch in the world for cents on the dollar, right? Um, so I think uh, in the next year or so, uh, that relationship with those two countries will be instrumental in, figure in, in determining whether Venezuela eventually does um, uh, reach a point where it can no longer pay its debt. Um, but uh, the willingness still is there because if they do default, that can mean um, you know, financially very difficult situation and as far as imports, et cetera. So what you're now seeing is this regime trying to move all its financial affairs and all its uh, uh, essentially trade issues w away from the US and, and the West and towards Russia, China, and India. Uh, and if they successfully somehow manage to do that over the next two years and they're still in a situation where they need to pay debt, that's when they're going to say, oh, I'm sorry, why am I paying debt? Uh, I need to feed my people. And they're going to stop paying it. But uh, they're, they're essentially setting themselves up for that moment. Thank you. Thank you, Raul and Gustavo. My, no my name is Moises Random from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for the presentation. I was about to ask the same question, but I'm just going to push it a little bit further. Um, just talking from the U.S. interest side, why would you think, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts, why U.S. engagement in Venezuela is important, why this crisis matters for the U.S., especially tied to the oil sector. I mean, the U.S. and Venezuela has been historically trade partners. So why this relationship matters today, but also tomorrow. And also to push on the, san on, on the component of the sanctions, what type of other sanctions is do you think is important to implement on this regime? I mean, we, we have the EU studying, analyzing what type of sanctions is important to implement. And we have other countries in the region also considering implementing sanctions on Venezuela. The big debate really is what type of sanctions, what level of sanctions, what if it's individual or government level sanctions. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, talking about sanctions, I believe that uh, there, there is a, a, a fundamental actor that has not shown up so far, which is the European Union. Uh, the U United States is the, the leading uh, uh, agent in sanctioning Venezuela, the Venezuelan regime, but it needs these sanctions to be extended, uh, to be taken by the European Union so that the pressure on, on the Venezuelan government can increase. Uh, I feel that the Venezuelan government is extremely close to collapsing. Uh, this combination of uh, financial default, the political isolation of, of the government of, of Maduro, uh, the, the general uh, opinion in the world turning against uh, the Maduro dictatorship. I, I feel the Maduro government, in spite of the recent victories, uh, elect, electoral, quote-unquote, uh, is very weak. So I believe that if, uh, if the European Union can join the United States and Canada in, in sanctioning uh, individuals and also applying economic sanctions on the, Venez on the Maduro regime, I believe the Maduro re regime shouldn't last uh, more than a few more months. Um. Yeah, I think I, I think definitely, you know, I, I, I take a different view on that. I think, you know, if we look historically, sanctions have never been enough to completely get rid of a regime, if that's the goal. Um, you know, we certainly see it with Cuba. Um, we've seen it with North Korea. We've seen it countless times. Um, and, and I think this regime in Venezuela cynically takes advantage of that, uh, of, of, of that knowledge. And and doesn't really fear sanctions because Venezuela understands, or the regime understands that the US right now is not ready to impose sanctions a la Cuba, for instance. I mean, uh, Trump is likely not ready to call the CEO of a Chevron and say, I don't care how much money you've spent and invested in Venezuela, I want you out of there. That's not gonna happen. Um, you know, it's the largest oil patch on the planet. Every oil company, large oil company, almost everyone, uh, with the exception of a few, uh, want to be there. And, uh, and, and I think that, um, as you point out, I, you know, the sanctions that they have imposed right now, uh, they're actually helpful for political propaganda purposes for, uh, for the regime. And so, you know, I think that um, this, is, uh, this is a regime that will cling on no matter what. And uh, they are advised by a government that has, cling, that has been able to cling to power no matter what for more than 50 years. Um, so I think they are thinking of those scenarios. They're playing them, um, they're playing around with them, they're thinking about them, they're planning for them. Um, so I, I, I'm afraid, you know, this is a government that is moving in a direction to become much more radicalized, economically speaking and politically speaking. Uh, there's a government that will likely try to revamp the political system so that Venezuela's politics function very differently than what we've done, that we've seen so far, um, uh, because they will reform the constitution, the constitution, and they will essentially do what they want. So, uh, I think we still have we're still a long ways from from reaching uh, a desired outcome, if you will. Now, if sanctions, the the goal is to make life hellish and and hard for a regime, then fair enough. That, that certainly is, is the effect, yeah. One last question.
Paulina Pereira, George Washington University. My question is on the private sector. You mentioned that oil companies have to stay there because that's where the oil is and they'll do whatever it is they have to do. Airlines, in contrast, are leaving the country basically at a rate of one per week at this point. Um, I do believe this regime is going to fall. I disagree with both of you that the problem with Venezuela is Venezuelans. Um, I think something will happen at some point and somebody else will come. When somebody else comes, who from the private sector is going to be left standing? Who hasn't left that could have left? Uh, I think there, I can tell you, I have a number of clients that haven't left and they have no plan of leaving. Um, you know, I think the, the way to look at it is if a company, say in the consumer product sector and in the, the food sector, which is a different animal from oil, um, if they have, say, a 30% um, market share in their product or in whatever it is they, they produce, uh, those, if it's more than 30%, those tend to stick around. Because their thinking is, I have deep pockets, I have a good sizable chunk of the market, um, hopefully all the other competitors will essentially disappear during this period and I'll come uh, out on the other side with 70% or 60% of the market. Um, so if you have the money to play that game, then fair enough. Uh, a number of these companies are playing it. Um, there are other companies where the problem is they are owed a lot of money by the government. Uh, and some of the oil services companies are involved in that too. Uh, and if you have a bill, say, I mean, publicly, it's publicly known that, for example, Somberger, there is between two and three billion dollars uh, of debt. If you have that amount of money sitting there, you're not going to walk away from it. Uh, you're going to try and get collect that bill as you stay there. Um, so I think a number of companies will try to continue to stay. The only thing is that the strategy of survival is going to have to change. Um, for the longest time, the strategy has been, I don't get involved in politics, I don't talk about politics, I keep people employed, and I give every signal that I want to stay in this country. And that should be enough for the government not to mess with me. That might not work anymore. Uh, particularly under a scenario where the government is becoming much more radicalized because it feels that it has an open freeway uh, because they can essentially violate every rule on the book and you know rig elections and nothing happens. Um, so uh, I think a number of big players in the private sector are going to remain there, um, but it will become uh, trickier to deal with those uh, with those threats, if you will. In the case of uh, uh, airlines, obviously, the, the big problem is that they were charging, um, you know, customers in, in bolivars and they weren't later able to convert those bolivars into hard currency. Eventually, that's not going to work. And uh, if the government doesn't legally allow you to charge um, in dollars, um, some of them have been doing it, but, uh, you know, it's... Um, it's tricky, obviously, to do that. And then there's a safety situation, the fact that the services they get at the airport are you know, far below par of any other um, airport, and you know, people are held up, uh, equipment is stolen. I mean, there's a litany of, of reasons why some of these companies have said, I'm just not going to waste my time. I, I, I just, I better not go there. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us for this event. I think it was a very uh, interesting discussion about Venezuela. I think that we still have some books outside if you want to buy, and I think Raul is going to stick around for a, a little longer, so if you want to get his uh, signature in the book. Uh, we have a reception in the Winter Garden here in the, on the first, first floor. Uh, please join us there, and uh, let's uh, thank again the speakers for their contribution to this forum.